In three weeks, we are doing our Reunion Roadshow. And you might be saying, Reunion Roadshow? What's that about? Reunion Roadshow. Part one is we are going to be doing a baptism and service out at Matthew Balaban's farm. Uh, we'll have details on addresses and things like that in the coming weeks. Uh, but that's going to be usual time, 1030. If you have not been baptized, fully immersed in a body of water, and you are a follower of Jesus, you are overdue to be baptized. And so we would invite you to reach out to us, info at churchofthecity.ca. We will also be providing opportunity for spontaneous baptism, so showing up. We will baptize you. That's going to be in a few weeks. And then July long weekend, we are not meeting at all. It's Reunion Roadshow Part 2. We're calling it Neighbor Sunday, and we are inviting you to have the opportunity of a Sunday morning to invite your neighbors over and to spend that time that you'd usually be with us, your church family, to spend time with your neighborhood family or other people that you are with. And so we want to intentionally provide that opportunity within our calendar uh, to get us, God's people, out in our city engaging with our neighbors. And so that's going to be the July long weekend. Uh, Spencer, why don't you come up and preach God's word to us this morning? Alrighty. We are started a little late, so we're going to. You were going to have Sam, my wife, do the scripture reading, so it's your loss. Uh, but we're going to be in the text a lot this morning, so uh, you will certainly not. Uh, you missing out on it. Um, I want to acknowledge something as we get started. First of all, my name's Spencer Adams. If we've never met, I'm the pastor of Missional Living here for Church of the City. And uh, if you know anything about the Enneagram, I'm a four on the Enneagram. Uh, and fours, we want everybody to feel everything deeply. Oh, I see some people standing with Bibles, so if you need a Bible, just put up your hand and we would love to get one to you. We will be in there a lot this morning. If you do not have one, you're welcome to take that with you. Uh, so us fours, we want, we feel everything deeply, like um, I don't uh, physically cry as much as my wife does. She cries a little bit. Um, uh, but I do feel things as deeply as she does, you know, um, the, the sort of, you know, a, a commercial about new tires or something can sometimes hit us both in the feels. And fours, we want you all to feel everything deeply with us. And so the more you hear me preach on Sundays, you'll recognize that, like, here we go, he's going to try and hit us in the feels again. Um, but this morning, I want to say, I think it is important that we engage our emotions a little bit as we get going, you'll understand what I mean. Um, I think it is important for us to, uh, yeah, to not just, I mean, this is our hope every Sunday morning, that you're not just engaging your head, but you're also engaging your heart. Um, and I think that's particularly important this morning as we go. So uh, I am going to do uh, what Matt often does when he teaches and just give us a moment to pause. I would uh, invite you to invite the Holy Spirit into your heart and ask him to engage uh, your emotions this morning um, and so that we can uh, understand a little bit better the moment that we're in as believers. So just take a moment. Jesus, we want to be disciples uh, with our whole selves, um, not just with our minds, but with our hearts uh, and with our hands going out and um, displaying the gospel in word and deed in our city. So this morning, 
uh, would you uh, would you open up our hearts to um, to recognize some of the challenges that we face as believers, uh, but also to find uh, real hope in that, uh, the hope of the gospel. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if this is uh, your first time with us or your first time with us in a while, we are in a series on the book of 1 Peter. You can turn in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be starting at verse 13. Um, but before we get there, uh, if you've been following along in this series, uh, we've been talking about hope in the midst of suffering. And I imagine that there are some of us who have perhaps, as we think about you know, the first century, the church just starting out, and we think about Peter writing to them and the suffering that they're facing, we just um, we end up picturing scenes like Rome and the Colosseum and some of the atrocities that believers faced there. And we kind of go to those extreme images of suffering in our mind that some of these very first Christians faced. And then maybe, uh, as we try and relate that to our present situation, we end up thinking about places like North Korea, where it is incredibly hard to be a Christian today, or places like the Middle East, like some of these stories that we just heard, and the suffering that some believers face all over the world. But then what can end up happening, perhaps, is that we end up distancing ourselves a little bit, personally, from what Peter's writing. Um, Because we're not experiencing sort of those extreme levels of suffering and persecution that we can think of. And I think that that would be a mistake, because, and Matt has already talked a little bit about this as he's gone on, but I want to spend just a, a little bit more time on this right now with you. The suffering that believers, that Uh, Peter was writing to that they were facing actually is very similar to what some of us experience in here in a city like Guelph in a country like Canada today and I want to build that out a little bit for us so thinking about the first century some of these believers that Peter was was writing to uh, most of the suffering that they were facing was not yet physical suffering not physical persecution most scholars believe that First Peter was written, that Peter wrote this letter uh, during the reign of Nero, and you know, we all can sort of think of the images of what went on under Nero's reign of the persecution of Christians, but that stuff really picked up after uh, a fire that devastated Rome, and Nero kind of used Christians as the scapegoat for that. That's when some of that intense persecution started. Most scholars think that First Peter was written before before that, prior to that. So most of the persecution that believers would have been facing wasn't physical. Um, It was sort of that cultural kind of suffering. Um, Many people believed that Christianity was just laughable, right? I mean, think about the ancient world where uh, these religions have been around for hundreds of years, and then all of a sudden, there's this new religion that's popped up. It's, you know, barely a couple of decades old. And you find out it was started by a carpenter in some, like, little backwater place. Oh, and actually he was executed. And there's all these people saying, no, this is, like, this is the, tr- this is the good news. Right? It, it's easy to understand how in that setting it was a little bit laughable, right? The, this new religion that had popped up. And some even believed that not only was it laughable, it was actually harmful. Uh, there was this... Uh, societal value there in the Roman Empire called conforming tolerance. Uh, It was this reciprocal kind of acceptance, uh, particularly in the areas of religion and morals. 
So as new, you know, religions kind of came along, they would sort of slowly be adopted into the milieu, right? I mean, think about uh, the Roman gods that we know of, right? They, the Romans more or less adopted the, the Greek pantheon of gods. They said, yeah, we can, we can do that. We'll take all those. Oh, now we're going to worship the emperor? Okay, sure. Um, that's fine. You know, so they just sort of kind of keep sweeping things in. And so in that, if that's a sort of high-level societal value, all of a sudden the exclusive position that Christianity takes was not only laughable, many saw it as poisonous and in direct conflict with the values that Roman society was trying to promote. Now let me ask, with this description I've given, does that sound at all familiar maybe to the situation that we find ourselves in today? I would suggest that it, it is fairly similar, right? Think about where we are today. We don't experience physical persecution like plenty of believers do around the world. Um, we don't experience that. However, I think it's safe to say that many in our society today consider Christianity laughable. I mean, you only have to watch a couple hours of television to see a Christian come on screen, and it's usually not a favorable uh, impression that you get, right? It's laughable. Watch five minutes of The Simpsons, and you'll know what I mean. How about, is Christianity dangerous? Uh, again, you only have to listen to, I would say, maybe a week's worth of programming on something like the CBC, uh, listen to the radio in the car, and you'll hear some, I, I, I went back, because as I was preparing, I thought of an example in my mind, and uh, a couple of months ago, I heard um, a host and a guest on a CBC program talking about, very casually, about the dangers of the very narrow evangelical Christian view of what normal is. They were talking about our perspective on morality and how narrow we are and how dangerous that is. And there was no sort of couching or qualifying. It was just, no, it's dangerous. So I think it is okay, and I actually think it's important for us as believers to recognize that it can be hard to be a Christian in our world today, in our own setting. We, as we said, we aren't physically threatened. We can gather here together on a Sunday morning in safety, which is a huge privilege and something that we're grateful for. And yet, our faith can create tough situations at work at times. Uh, with our kids in school, some tough situations can arise in our uh, neighborhoods with, with neighbors. And you might be thinking like, I'm content thinking that it's not that bad. Like, why are you trying to get me to think that things are, are worse? I think it's important for us to be able to recalibrate ourselves, to recognize that we're in a situation where it can be difficult to be a Christian in our culture, in our society, because if we're able to own that and uh, learn how to live within that, then I think it actually opens up new opportunities for us as believers. And that's sort of my thesis for this morning. The world says that suffering when you are innocent is unjust. We all understand that. And, and it is, right? Suffering when you're innocent is unjust. But the gospel says that that's an opportunity, actually. The world says that suffering when you're innocent is unjust. And that's sort of the end of the conversation. But the gospel says that it's an opportunity. And so now you're probably asking the question, well, an opportunity for what? And that's what we're going to look at our text this morning to see. 
I think we, we are given three opportunities from our passage this morning that, that suffering opens up for us. So let's start at verse 13. The first opportunity that suffering gives us as believers is suffering for doing good is an opportunity to display the hope of the gospel. We've been talking a lot about this already through the course of this series. But look at me at verse 13. Peter says, now, this is 1 Peter 3.13, just if you had missed our chapter. Peter says, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? When he says now, you get the sense that he's following up on something that he's already said, and he's following up on verse 12, which we looked at last week, where he says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So then he says, now who's there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Peter's promising that if you're a believer, God's favor is secured for you through Jesus. And if that's true, wrongdoing, suffering that we might face doesn't have to be a huge factor for us. It just doesn't. And this makes us really hopeful people, at least it ought to. Let's think about this practically in terms of our world today. In our cultural moment today, I think one of the most important commodities for us as people is our public perception. What do people think of us? This is part of the reason I think that people spend hours cultivating this uh, digital person, right? Through uh, social media and all these other ways. Um, we want to put the, the right foot forward digitally, the right digital foot forward uh, in our world today. And yet Peter, through this passage in verse 13 and 14 and onward, he talks about how this can get taken away. We can be slandered. We can be reviled. This public perception can be damaged very easily. And actually, it wasn't so different, as I said, to what the Christians in the first century were facing. One commentator, Leonard Goppelt, I'm just going to say his name that way, even though I'm sure that's not how you say it. He says it this way. This verbal hostility against the Christians comes from their fellow citizens, also and precisely from their relatives, colleagues, and acquaintances. It's more than a personal insult. It takes from them the public respect on which existence in society depended, even more than in our time. Interesting. It reminds me of the world that we live in right now. But Peter goes on in verse 14, even if, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Like, how does that work, right? How, where, where's the math adding up on that? Well, he's still talking about verse 12. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Our perception is held firm where it actually counts, in the eyes of God. In the eyes of God, if you are a believer placing your trust in Jesus, we are declared righteous. You are declared right before God. That is the perception of yourself that ultimately matters. What does God say about you? And if you're a believer, you've been declared righteous through the blood of Christ. And so you're blessed. And therefore, as he says in verse 14, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. We don't need to be, right? 
the, the, the damage that we might face to our public perception for being a believer, for believing these, this wacky, superstitious thing, we don't need to be living in fear of that. That doesn't need to get to us. This is classic four questions stuff. If you are a part of a DNA or you've been through uh, one of our pilot groups or perhaps you've just read Gospel Fluency, you know the four questions. They are, who is God and what has God done? Who are we as people in light of who God is and what he's done? And in light of that identity, how should we live? This is flipping up, flipping over the way the world forms identity. Your identity comes from what you do. But the gospel says our identity comes from God and what he's done for us. That's the four questions. And this passage that we're looking at is classic four question stuff. Who is God? He is our savior, our redeemer. What's he done? He has saved us. And therefore, who are we? We are a blessed people. We have been saved. And then how do we live in light of that? Certainly not in fear. We live without fear, honoring Christ. He goes on in verse 15. Peter introduces this important point for us, which again, I think is so applicable to our world today. He says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Let me ask you a question. What today is the typical response when someone uh, faces damage to their public perception, especially if it's unwarranted? Like what's the response online, for example? I'd say it's usually some version of outrage. Right? When you face some kind of accusation or uh, criticism, the common, almost reflex response is outrage. And yet, if we are people who understand that our good is secured for us through Jesus, that our perception, where it counts, is just fine in the eyes of God, we can live without fear. I think makes us a pretty hopeful people. And Peter's saying, people are going to notice that because that's weird. And I think that's true in our day today. That's strange. If you can go on living a hopeful life and people can throw whatever kind of accusation at you and you can keep doing good. That's strange. And he's saying that people are going to ask about it. And then the question is, and you're, you're, those of you in missional communities are going to laugh because I'm just like hitting on all these missional community points here, but do you have a good uh, grasp of gospel fluency? When you're asked that question, hey, like our boss, you know, in that meeting kind of was dogging you a bit for uh, being a believer and therefore like not wanting to do this thing that he was asking you to do and you were, you seem like just fine. Like you don't seem affected by that at all. Like what, what's the deal? Um, he was kind of rude to you there. And are you able in that moment to articulate why you are still a hopeful person? Why you're still going about your day with a smile on your face, doing good, uh, honoring your boss? Can you articulate the gospel in that moment? That's what gospel fluency is. And this passage is pointing us to the need to be fluent in the gospel. The second opportunity that suffering gives us as believers is this. Suffering for the gospel is an opportunity to place ourselves squarely in the story of God. Starting back in the time of Noah and culminating in Jesus. 
It's an opportunity to place ourselves squarely in the story of God. Peter goes on in verse 18 and he says, hey, I hope you remember Christ too endured suffering that he did not deserve. Christ too endured suffering that he didn't deserve. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. It was Christ's willingness to suffer in the first place that brought us back to God. Without that, we wouldn't have the gospel to begin with. And he goes on. But before, well, I'll read it and then I'll uh, make some qualifications. Uh, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. I'm going to just acknowledge classic uh, teaching pastor thing to do, to give to uh, the other guy one of the most complicated contested passages in scripture. Classic, Matt. Uh, Luther, Martin Luther is like quoted on record as more or less saying, I don't know. Uh, like this passage has so many different interpretations of what is going on here. I'm going to, for our, the sake of our time, I'm going to give you what I think Peter is saying here, but there are a number of other fully orthodox positions. If you have a study Bible, you could, you're probably reading about some of those right now. Um, Here's what I think Peter's saying. This was the view first articulated by Augustine and then carried on by others. Uh, Starting in verse 18 there, Christ was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Peter's saying Jesus' body experienced physical death on the cross, his flesh, but the spirit raised him from the dead. Then in verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Here's where all these different interpretations open up, but what I think Peter's talking about is he is reminding the believers that Christ was also at work through the Spirit back during the time of Noah. And the Spirit's, Spirit's plural, that he's talking about in verse 19, are the humans in Noah's day who refused to listen to Noah and therefore perished in their disobedience and unbelief. And thus they are now spirits in prison, in hell. Tracking with me? Not simple by any stretch of the imagination. Um, That's the spirits that he's talking about. And Peter's saying Noah, through his patient perseverance, slowly building this giant ark, was testifying to the same message that Peter is reminding believers of here. It's God who saves us. It's God who saves us. But if we're held by God, we have nothing to fear. It's God who saves us, but if we're held by God, we have nothing to fear. And so as Peter continues on in verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water, Peter's reminding that a small group of people who trusted in the faithfulness of God in the face of suffering were preserved. And then he goes on and says, which, oh, by the way, that is what our baptism reminds us of. Look at verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Baptism is a symbolic expression of the same experience that Noah had, although Noah had it in a very physical way. That is, God, without you, I am sinking. Um, Noah had that experience in a very physical, physical, tangible way. Um, But you can save me through what Christ has done. Without you, I am lost, but you can save me. That's what baptism is this outward expression of. So what is Peter doing here? As I said, I think he's placing these believers that he's writing to squarely in the story of God, reminding them, reminding this group of believers who are being told day after day that what they believe is nonsensical and offensive, that they're in good company. (laughs) They are in good company. Noah experienced it. The prophets experienced it. They were experiencing it, and believers ever since have experienced it. And through our baptism, friends, we are united together and united in Christ, who himself suffered, though he did not deserve it, to earn our salvation. Okay, you can take a breath. We'll move into some slightly less contested waters of, uh, in our passage here. Our third opportunity that the gospel gives us Uh, Suffering for the gospel gives us opportunities to do good. You're like, can't we just have those opportunities without suffering? Um, Let me explain. By releasing ourselves as believers from the standards of comfort and happiness and reputation that the world holds, we give ourselves opportunities to do good that those around us would never have, would never be free to consider. Let me give you a a totally um, left-field example to illustrate this point. Another example of where suffering opens up opportunities. Um, I think I've shared this with you before, but uh, for two seasons, I was a tree planter in uh, northern Ontario. Um, Has anybody here ever done any tree planting? Like... um, like more than just a tree in your yard. Like, a, yeah, we did a, a dogwood for uh, Mother's Day. Um, like, I mean, like, a, like as a job, it's piecemeal. You get paid per tree. For us, it was about nine and a half cents. Um, but uh, before, so I worked for a company called Haveman Brothers, based out of Kakabeka Falls in northern Ontario. Um, before you can even apply as a rookie um, on the Haveman website, when you <clears throat> click to apply, this window pops up, and I want to read to you what it says. Um, It says, before you consider applying for a job, ask yourself these questions. Would I cry if I had to wake up one morning in the freezing cold, throw on my day-old underwear, slide my feet into slightly wet boots, crawl out of my tent into the pouring rain, run into the mess tent, shovel down some breakfast, hastily prepare lunch, hop on the bus, and notice that somehow the black flies have found safe haven inside my clothes? Or would I tape up my fingers with duct tape and think to myself, I can't wait to get to my land and start pounding in trees for 10 hours straight. (laughs) Still here, it says, if tears have started to well up in your eyes, I suggest you go back to Google and Google jobs that are a little more urban. But if in a sick kind of way this scenario has excited you, let's go. Um... (laughs) Tree planting, uh, 
by being willing to suffer, it opens up opportunities. You are in a place with uh, no cell service, um, nowhere to go uh, in the evenings, nothing to do on your breaks, uh, no one to talk to generally, um, and all of that uh, suffering opens up a big opportunity to make lots of money. Um, it, it just does, right? And that's why people do it uh, year after year. I think that example can apply here, not so much to the making money side of it. I, I can attest to ministry not being, you know, the most lucrative endeavor. But if you're willing to take, take a hit on comfortability and reputation that everybody else in our culture demands, demands for themselves, then opportunities open up for the gospel to be proclaimed in word and deed. And Peter acknowledges this isn't like easy, right? He's not trying to say that. He says in in verse 1 of chapter 4, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Going back to that, um, that language of war that Matt talked about. Like this is a battle. This is hard. But look what he says in in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Is Peter saying that believers, uh, you know, as soon as you face some suffering, then you never sin anymore? I don't think he's saying that. I think most of us in the room can attest to that not being the reality. I think what he is saying is that these are two completely different ways of looking at life. Two completely different views about the human life. Are we going to look for our blessing and for our good in things like human passions that he talks about in verse 2? Or as he goes on, in uh, sensuality and passion and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry? Is that where we're going to find our good and our blessing? Or are we going to make a break with those things knowing, as we already said, that our blessing is secured for us, that it is held on to, it is preserved in heaven as we talked about a couple weeks ago. So if we do that, then we can make a break with that list of things that he goes through and we can be willing to then suffer what the world sees as suffering for the sake of the kingdom of God. In verses 4 to 6, if you look there, uh, Peter more or less acknowledges that um, people who have not followed Jesus will think that this is like more or less ludicrous. Uh, He says in verse uh, 4, with respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. I mean, it makes sense, right? When people look at a believer and they can't understand like, like, where are you thinking that your good is coming from? Like, these things that we experience, and it's not just, like, orgies and drunkenness and stuff, but, like, hey, chasing a promotion, like, that, that's going to be where my good is found, right? Like, then I can make a little bit more. I can support my family better. Like, that, those are good things, and you're saying that those things don't matter? Like, we get maligned for that in our world today. Peter's acknowledging that. That for people who have not followed Jesus, this is ludicrous. But he goes on, he, he even articulates this uh, argument that people will make about us um, in verse, got to get my notes back in order here. There we go. In verse uh, 6, verse 5 and 6. They will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead, for this is why 
the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Peter lets us in on a little argument that people were making in that day about just another reason that the Christian faith is is nonsensical, they would say, hey, so you're saying that like your good is to be found, you know, after your death, eternal life. Well, look at, you know, John Smith, this guy that was a, a, a great Christian. He's dead now. We buried him two weeks ago. Like he's gone. Well, you know, where's his good now? Peter's saying they're missing the fact that uh, John Smith is now alive with Christ. If he is a follower of Jesus, that he's experiencing his blessing. So then in verse 7 to 11, Peter lays out this beautiful list of all the good opportunities, the good things that we can do when we let go of our comfort and standing in the world. We can be people devoted to prayer, earnest in love for each other, showing gracious hospitality, using our God-given gifts to teach, to serve. I did, if you're interested on building out a little bit more of this passage, I did a message uh, around about the new year, about gospel hospitality, and talked about all the, the beautiful aspects of hospitality that believers ought to embody. I'd encourage you to listen to that. That was kind of self-promotion. Um, anyways, uh, but just, I'm saying why we don't have time to talk about this little chunk more, but I did a, a sermon on it a few months ago. Okay, relax. It was not self-promotion. All right, let's land the plane here. Friends, this, I think, is a difficult time in which we live. Our culture, I, I heard someone call it uh, recently, called it acidic soil. Our culture, I think, is in many ways acidic soil as we try and plant gospel seeds. And it can feel like the church is on shaky ground. But I think in the days ahead that if we're able to reorient what it means to be a Christian in our culture, that that will open up incredible opportunities for us. We will come to view suffering as a normal and reasonable part of our lives as believers, and then I think we'll actually see the kingdom expand in ways that we never would have expected or foreseen, and we'll realize just how strong the church, the bride of Christ, really is. Jesus promised, right, hell does not stand a chance against my bride, the church. doesn't stand a chance, and I think sometimes we forget that. Or we struggle to believe it. We think, man, this is, we're in some like tenuous territory here. But Christ promised the church is strong. Are we willing to reorient ourselves to be able and willing to suffer and embrace the opportunities that that gives? In closing, this, this uh, Christian historian, or excuse me, historian who's not a, a Christian, not a believer, named Rodney Stark, wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity, thinking from a historian's sort of sociological perspective about what was going on in those first few centuries that led to such growth in the church. And so again, he's not writing as a Christian, but here's what he writes in his book, The Rise of Christianity. Christianity did not grow because of miracle working in the marketplaces, or because Constantine said it should. He's talking about Constantine, the Roman Empire, converting to Christianity in 300-something. Historians in the room? 312? That's my guess. Um, Didn't grow because Constantine said it should, or even because martyrs gave it such credibility. It grew because Christians constituted an intense community. I love that. 
Christians constituted an intense community able to generate invincible obstinacy. I can think of a few Christians who display invincible obstinacy. Uh, And the primary means of its growth was through the united and motivated efforts of the growing numbers of Christian believers who invited their friends, relatives, and neighbors to share the good news. Obviously, Rodney doesn't realize that that is God working in us and through us. But I love the reality that he touches on, that it grew because Christians had this invincible obstinacy, believing that whatever we face in this world, that our good is secured for us, and actually when we face suffering, it gives us opportunities to see the kingdom grow, to see the gospel advance. And I hope that that is the mindset that we can go to our jobs, into our neighborhoods, into our schools every day with. Let's pray. Jesus, I, um, I'm thankful that we worship a God who was able to give us the most beautiful, um, just hard to comprehend example of working good things out of suffering. You showed us that on the, on the cross through your death and resurrection, that through the greatest of suffering can come the greatest good. That is why we are here um, as the body of Christ. And so I pray that we would arm ourselves with that way of thinking, as Peter says, that through our suffering, opportunities can arise for us to display the gospel in word and deed in the city of Guelph and beyond. I know that that takes uh, courage, a lot of grace, uh, and for you to be um, filling us up. So I pray that you would do that now and in the days ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.